Hello and welcome to the second episode of Wicked Spooky Podcast with Dead Doug. On this episode, I interview Lindsay Moore from Hellcat Press. Lindsay and I had a great conversation. I hope you check out Hellcat Press's website and Facebook page to check out their comics. Before we start, I'd like to give a shout out to Nightmare Town Podcast. They've been super supportive and helpful ever since I started. If you guys like what I do, you'll definitely love their podcast as well please check them out on their website, their Facebook page, and wherever you find your podcasts. I'd also like to give a shout out to the Freaky Franchise podcast. They sent us a promo, so let's give it a listen. I'm Theo. And I'm Cordy. And together we host Freaky Freaky Franchise, Franchise, a podcast where we unmask horror movies based on quantity over quality. We watch horror franchises movie by movie and review every single one. That's right. We don't skip a single film, no matter how bad or difficult to find it is. And we ask the important questions, such as... Why are Freddy's arms so long? Why is there so much butt touching in these movies? And, of course, the most obvious... Is Candyman hot? It's hard to tell. (laughs) You can join us every other Friday at FreakyFranchise.com or wherever you find podcasts. Oh, yeah. And don't forget... After the interview, stick around for my terrible tale. Let's welcome Lindsay to the Wicked Spooky Podcast. Nice to have you. Hello. Hello. It's nice so, to be here. Excellent. And to start off, if you just want to give us a quick overview of what you do and how you came to be in the spooky field. All right. Well, my name is Lindsay Moore, and I've been a big fan of horror ever since I was young. And I've also always felt drawn to the world of writing. I've been very attracted to it. And I've always written. I've always written little stories. And so naturally, they all kind of turned into little horror stories. <laughs> but um, uh, let's see what I do. I do write. I've been featured on the No Sleep podcast uh, nine times. The, my most uh, well-known uh, story it would be Mr. Clacky Teeth, which is about a girl with a creepy ventriloquist puppet, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I also, in 2014, my, uh, my husband and I, we co-founded Hellcat Press, which is a very, very, very tiny, very little, very small, very indie comics publishing um, where we do horror comic anthologies. And we've put out five to date. Awesome. Yeah, I was looking at those on the website and they look fantastic. So I have to order some. Always about helping out the indie. Yeah, the indie comic scene. You always got to support that. Yeah, indie creators. We all appreciate that kind of thing. Um but yeah, I, I love indie, my fellow indie creators and mm-hmm. want to um, promote as many of them as possible too. So, Absolutely. So how did you get involved with the No Sleep podcast? Well, um, I discovered the podcast in, I think it was 2015. I discovered it. They were, they were midway through season seven. No. Sorry, season six. They were on season six when I discovered them. And I sort of uh, jumped in at the 
very beginning season one, and then I sort of listened to it the whole way through. The job I was working at at the time, I was able to just listen to podcasts all day. I could just, you know, put on headphones and listen to a podcast and just sort of go. And what I noticed about No Sleep, because I'd be binging episodes all day, and, you know, each episode is like about two hours, and so there's like four or five stories. So I'd be hearing like 12 of these stories a day. And I noticed a lot of similar imagery and tropes popping up. And, you know, eventually I kind of got to a point where I was saying to myself, I wonder if I can do this. And so I wrote my first story, uh, The Thing in the Yard, which is a babysitter in peril. And I submitted that and it was accepted. And they did a fantastic job. Um, Alexis Bristow, no, not Alexis, I'm sorry, Corinne Sanders narrates. And they did a fantastic job with it. And then I kind of got hooked, I guess. I, <laughs> I, you know, I was just like, well, I wonder if I can do it again. So I did another one, The Woman Made of Glass, which is about a ballerina involved in a really weird sort of student film. And Nicole Doolin did the narration and it was fantastic. And I just sort of kept going from there. And I've been on nine times now. <laughs> so. <laughs> awesome. So what was it Thanks. about uh, comic books? Why, why comic book anthology? Why not just, you know, regular prose? Or what is it about that field? Uh, I've always loved comic books. I've always been really into them. And for the longest time, it was just superhero comics for me. For a very long time, I think up through college, it was just superhero comics. And then I sort of started branching out and realizing like, oh, well, there's so much more out there. And there's also a, a really great plethora of horror comics, you know, stuff from like EC Comics, uh, Tales from the Crypt type stuff, all the way up through present day where we have things like Lock and Key, uh, Afterlife with Archie, which is better than it's right to be, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> um, like I, I picked it up and I was like, oh, Riverdale and the zombie apocalypse. And then I was just hooked. Mm-hmm. I was just hooked. I was like, I've heard this in my life. Um, but, you know, up, up through that and then there's, you know, even more stuff. Um, like a, a, a one that I just finished is called, I forget who it's by, but it's called Something is Killing the Children. Where it's uh, sort of this, this, this horrific, horrible monster type type creature. And only children can see it because they believe in monsters and it's, it's going after them. And there's this woman who's there and she's trying to, you know, she, she's a monster slayer and she's trying to, you know, uh, get this infestation under control type thing. Um, but I've always been really into comics. I've always liked them a lot and I've always liked them as a form of storytelling. You know, as I grew up, I got more into horror comics. I don't think I necessarily set out, Like, I didn't say to myself, like, I'm going to write horror comics and Mm. just horror. It sort of happened kind of, I want to say accidentally. I had been with this co-ed comic book club, Men and Women, and the group had put out a lot of anthologies together, Uh, you know, all kinds of really great anthologies that I had, and I had participated in a lot of them, and I had been an active member for about seven years at the time, and there had been a few very sexist incidents with Mm. the group and I had spoken out uh, about them at length and kind of been brushed aside every time but what I wanted to do was put out a horror comic anthology that would be all women or all people who identify and I wanted it to be all women writers all women artists and I I wanted to do that and so I I pitched it to the group and I I had like a, a you know I had a presentation and they said you know like oh the floor is yours and so I had like a whole thing written out and I said uh, you know, comics is a very uh, male, I don't know, um, horror. Horror is a very male-dominated genre, and I want to open that up to women. And this one guy just blurts out, he just yells, Mary Shelley! And he just kept <laughs> saying it. Like, as if, like, and he kept saying it, too. He kept going, Mary Shelley, Mary Shelley, Mary Shelley, as if I'm supposed to say, like, oh, that's right. A woman did a famous thing 200 years ago. I'd better get back in the kitchen and make you boys some cookies. You know, that type of thing. And no one would tell him to shut up. No one would tell him to stop. Everyone's just sort of putting up with it. And I was really mad. And I I made it through my presentation. And the guy who was sort of in charge of that meeting, the guy who was supposed to be like acting as a moderator, you know, so I get to the end and I say, uh, 
well, does anyone have any questions? And this guy who's supposed to be moderating it, he, he raises his hand and he goes, yeah, but what if I collaborate with a woman? And then it, it devolved into a joke. It was just the guys having a joke and they were like, what if I just don't tell you I'm a man? Can I use my initials? Can I write under a female pen name? Can I write a story about a woman? What if I get a sex change? And actually one of the guys, the guy who said, can I get a sex change? I said to him, cause I, I always bring my, um, at the time I was taking the bus to these meetings and I always have my knitting bag with me. And so I said to him, I have my scissors and I didn't mean it like a joke. <laughs> I didn't mean it like a joke at all, but he laughed. And so part of me was thinking like, you're either real stupid or real brave, mister. And I felt really awful about what happened because it was turned into a joke. Uh, none of the women who were in the room asked me any questions during the meeting. And I felt really awful. I felt really angry. And I called the group out on it publicly on the, uh, we had like a, a web chat. And so I, I, I said, this happened and it's not cool and it's not right. And I don't like it. And the, this group feels like a boys club. This group is a boys club. And the response that I got from men and from women, from men and women was, well, if you don't like it, you can leave. There's the door. And so a big part of it was for Hellcat Press anyway, a big part of Hellcat Press was, fine, I'm going to take my ball and go home. You know, I, I was talking with, with my husband and he was like, well, let's just do it ourselves. Like, how hard can it be? <laughs> Which famous last words right there. But yeah, so I, I did a whole bunch of research into anthologies and into to comics and stuff like that. And I sort of decided like, well, I'm going to do it myself and I'm going to see where it goes. And we've put out five anthologies. So I think it's gone pretty well. That's excellent. And it's sad, but I see it all the time. Uh, horror, I was having the conversation yeah. last night. Horror is pretty open. Most of the people I've met in the horror field are great. They're wonderful. Yeah. But in any fandom, you get the gatekeepers. And yep. Yep. you get oh, as, as the comics field, as I've been reading since I was a kid, and I've had to stop oh, yeah. wading in on my Facebook groups. I've, I've had to either mm -hmm. dump them or just ignore all the comments yep. because the gatekeeping, even, even now, is out of control especially in light of everything that's going on right now in the U.S., they still have opinions yeah. that are so backwards in, in terms of not just I, women, but just minorities. And oh, the, yeah. yeah. I, I think that the gatekeeping, especially in comics, has gotten much worse within the past, like, five to ten years. Mm -hmm. I think it's gotten exponentially worse. Yeah. You know, because, you know, like, Marvel or DC will be like, oh, hey, we're, we're going to finally... You know, it's, we, we've been making movies for like a decade, but we're finally going to give Captain Marvel a movie. Ugh. And you got guys who are like, no, what? What has Captain Marvel getting a movie? You know, it's like you have, you, you know, it's not going to undo all the other movies. They're not going to magically disappear. And it's, it's also sort of like, it's, it's not a pie. You're not going to get any less of it. Mm -hmm. this, yeah, this movie's for you too. It's for everybody. Like, you know. But you still you still get that, and it's it is frustrating. My yeah. my favorite comment, and I saw it way way too many times, was, "Well, she should smile more." Oh yeah. Oh, oh lord. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. It's funny because some people were like, "Oh, why she? How come she's not smiling on the the movie poster? She's not smiling on the movie. It's an action movie. No one's supposed to smile on an action movie poster." Exactly. I remember talking husband because. You know, he doesn't really he doesn't really do superhero comics. He doesn't really do superhero comics. So every time we go see a superhero movie, I love it because I get to explain who everybody is and what they do. But uh, I remember saying like, "Oh, you people are so pissed off that she's not smiling on the movie." And he goes, "It's an action movie. You're not allowed to smile. You right. have to have that angry face." He's like, "You know, it's illegal. <laughs> You're not allowed to." Yeah, so, I don't remember seeing the Avengers smiling on their posters. So they're not smiling. Iron Man's not smiling. Thor doesn't smile. Captain America's not smiling. Spider-Man's none of them. No yeah. one's. No. No oh, one is. Unbelievable. <laughs> That's just my little pet yeah. peeve right now, but it, it's yeah. prevalent in a number of the fandoms, and it's sad because okay. it is 
so easy, especially online for people to just wade in. And then all of the voices of reason or, you know, everybody else is drowned out or doesn't want to speak up because they just don't want to either get in a fight or just deal with the kind of backlash. Um, Yeah. And it's, and it's so easy to comment online too because you're hiding behind a computer and you don't have to be held accountable for it exactly you know no one knows who you are in real life so no one's gonna you know show up at your house and say well hey how come you said this about you know captain marvel not smiling no one's gonna (laughs) hold you for that right you can say it's the beauty and the horror of the internet internet Yeah. And, and that's why I think it's good that you and, and other people are providing that kind of platform for the voices you may not hear. Uh, when I was looking into the press, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. And I was showing my wife as well, because, of course, she is she as well is not a big superhero person. So I get to introduce her to all the heroes, but she's not the biggest comics fan. It, it really depends on what it is. Um, she did like Lock and Key. She likes that sort of stuff. Yeah. Sandman, Neil Gaiman, everybody loves mm-hmm. Sandman. But I showed her that and, oh. and she was like, oh, that sounds like something I might be interested in as well. So it's, it's good because you get the platform for the people and then you get the fans who may not be into certain things because of its history or right. what it represents. Or Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. I, I think more voices of just, just more voices in general, but I think mm-hmm. especially more of like you know women members of the lgbt community uh ethnic minorities um religious uh you know minorities as well and that's the type of stuff that i have lately been trying to seek out in college i took a class called the literature of horror i remember at the time thinking like oh man this is so cool this is the best class this is awesome and i recently was going through all of my stuff and i found my notebook Mm. i found syllabus i was looking at the syllabus and it was like white dude white dude white white dude a white dude a gay white dude a white dude a white dude and race a white dude a white dude and it just it was just all so homogenous and we read a lot of really great stuff but at the same time there was a lot of really great stuff we didn't get to explore and Mm -hmm. we didn't read and it really kind of bums me out because, um, you know, you, you, the whole reason you go to college is to broaden your horizons and to have new experiences and to learn about new points of view. And unfortunately, and I didn't, and again, I, I also didn't fully realize this until years and years had gone by, but this class didn't really do that to the mm-hmm. extent that I had hoped. It was just like, there's all these white heteros, except for Clive Barker. I was going to say, was it Clive Barker? <laughs> it was Clive Barker. Yeah. He wrote some of his short stories. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, even, even in the class, uh, you know, we, we read some stuff by H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. And one of the stories that we read was The Rats in the Walls. And that's a great story. It's yeah. a really great story. It's really scary. The main character has a black cat with yes. uh, a name I can I remember reading it and saying, oh, goodness, this cat's name. Oh, wow. And we got to class and the professor just said, we're going to call the cat Fluffy. <laughs> and then we never talked about it again. <laughs> and, and, you know, on the one hand, I was definitely, I know that I was definitely sitting there like, oh, thank God we don't have to have a difficult discussion about racism. But we should have had that discussion. Mm-hmm. That's something we have talked about and we didn't and it's something that like occasionally i'll be thinking like like right now when i'm talking about it i'm there thinking like i should have said something i should have said like you know we need to talk about this but i didn't and i was complacent and that's a jerk move on my part and i am sorry for it but i have been trying to broaden my horizons and find uh new new authors that aren't just straight white dudes Mm-hmm. No, I've I've been doing the same, um, especially in the last couple of years. You know, I, I go out of my way to try and find those voices because, uh, again, growing up, you know, I didn't seek them out, and that's on right. me. You know, it, it's Stephen King, yeah. it's Clyde Barker, of course, but oh, yeah. you know, still white male. Uh, Anne Rice, I dabbled yeah. in, but for the most part, it was the straight white male horror authors, and including H.P. Lovecraft yeah. and. 
as problematic as he can be. And just as another aside, never wade into that conversation on Facebook with HP Lovecraft groups because that just, yeah, <laughs> that is migraine inducing to try and, and have any discussion. It's, yeah. You know, there's this convention in Rhode Island called Necronomicon mm -hmm. that they every other year. And it's a Lovecraft convention, all about HP Lovecraft. And I went one year with um, the books from, from Hellcat Press, my husband and I went. And I'm trying to remember what year it was. I think it was 2017 when we went. Yeah, it was 2017. Mm. And the, we went, because I, I, I was a vendor. So I had like, you know, kind of access to the like opening remarks and, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, we have this big opening ceremony where we're all crammed into like this little auditorium and there's this guy and I can't remember this guy's name life me I can't remember his name but he actually got up there and he did talk about how Lovecraft was problematic and he did he, he went up there and he said he had a lot of problematic views that are not acceptable mm -hmm. but the reason that we have this festival is because of the genre the subgenre of literature that he helped create and he said Lovecraft built the sandbox, but we all get to play in it. That was a really great way to look at it because, you know, and, and later I went to this, um, you know, we, we were in Providence, of course. <laughs> they, there was a, a little a little hole in the wall bookstore that was an H.P. Lovecraft themed bookstore, of course. Mm -hmm. But a lot of really great um, books. I uh, found a, a really fantastic one and I forget Oh, I forget the editor on this, but it's called She Walks in Shadows. And uh, it's, a, it's a prose anthology that's all women and it's all of their, they're all stories based on Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, like a, you know, a attitude of women and their take on Lovecraft. And then there were a whole slew of other books that I bought from that store that were all non-white authors and LGBTQ authors and women authors too. And so to me, I was there like, yeah, I, I like that statement that Lovecraft may have built the sandbox, but he can't control who plays in it. We all get to play in it. Exactly. I've been to that bookstore as well. My wife got me a t-shirt from there for my birthday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great little shop. I don't know if you've read Victor Laval's Ballad of Black Tom, which is have, yes. it's so good. And it's a companion piece it's to, fantastic. Yeah, to Lovecraft's yeah. Red Hook story. And then, of course, Lovecraft, Country is a great book, which... Yeah, by Matt Ruff. That's exactly, fantastic. yeah. And Matt Ruff's a great writer to begin with, and, and that oh, book yeah. is fantastic. And I've watched the I'm trailer. Very much looking forward, I'm looking forward to the TV series. Oh, me really as well. Can't. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it, it looks fantastic. Yeah. Um, it looks exactly like I imagined. It's, it's great that people can take this problematic writer and his beliefs and just make something more of it and evolve it. Yeah. Uh, that is fantastic to see. And hopefully we get more of that in all levels of horror, not just HP Lovecraft, but again, like you're saying, we need those yeah. other voices and I've tried to seek them out as well. Yes. In movies as well too. Yeah. Jordan Peele is great for that, but we need so many more voices. Oh yeah. I loved his movies and I desperately want to see more same time i also hope that he brings more people into right the world of movie making with with monkey paw studios I think that's, that's what his, i'm hoping his production company right that monkey? is yeah monkey paw okay. yeah mm -hmm. yeah i'm i'm hoping he just you know ushers in like a new new renaissance of more diverse horror exactly. i would love yeah and i think the process i looked online and it's fairly open and easy compared to you know trying to get a script read by anyone in hollywood yeah. this just seems like send us something and somebody will definitely read it whether or not it gets made is another thing but at least it's that open yeah. to all voices from anywhere funny aside about hp lovecraft and i never realized this i grew up reading lovecraft but my hometown is Newburyport, Mass. I don't know if you know where that is. Oh, yeah. And that's I, I actually... do. My husband is from Marblehead. Oh, okay. Nice. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so Lovecraft used Marblehead in some of his stories. Yep. And uh, yeah, he did. Newburyport is actually 
back in the day, not how it is now. Newburyport is very affluent now. And, but back before Newburyport had its renaissance, Lovecraft visited, and that was his basis for Innsmouth, which I didn't find out until oh, years right. later. Yeah. What is it about New England? We seem to have a higher rate yeah. of horror writers, spookiness, Mm. Just in general, like, uh -huh. where does that come from? So many horror writers yeah. oh, and man. filmmakers come from here, more yeah. so than you'd even imagine. I think part of it definitely has to do with the fact that when compared to the rest of the United States, New England is so old. We're kind of the first, uh, like, foothold, you know, the first 13 colonies. We were all in, in New England, you know. Um, so I feel like there's that that history there. And then actually, yeah, if we're getting on the topic of history, we had like, you know, the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts and that type of thing. I also feel like in New England, I've never really, I haven't really traveled the United States very thoroughly. <laughs> so I could just be completely making it up here, but Works for to me, me <laughs> it feels like, to me, it feels like in New England, we, we go kind of the extra mile to preserve history there's like all these historic houses that you can go and visit and everything is you know kept up so nicely and who knows maybe they've got this in like california or the west coast or whatever i have no idea all i know is that they have this in new england i've been on field trips all over the place to like you know uh, plymouth plantation and old sturbridge village and the house of the seven gables and just all of these you know old old places that have been kept up and uh, the, the history is, you know, written down. And so I think, I think that's part of it. I think it's because we have like, you know, a smidge more history mm -hmm. than the rest of the United States. But I also think too, there's just something about New England that says something kind of spooky about New England, <laughs> you know? Like a, a, dreary, a dreary autumn day in New England, you know, where it's, you know, you've got that like slate gray sky. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the rustling of the leaves that have fallen all over the sidewalk and, uh, you know, that, that chill in the air, that sort of dampness, and it just feels spooky, it feels kind of creepy. You know, like, because I remember when I was little, I used to, well, when I was younger, I should say, I used to really like days like that because you could, you know, curl up inside. I used to call it like a goosebumps kind of day because I could curl up inside with a goosebumps book. But I, I do, I think there's something spooky. <laughs> spooky out here. I'll put my finger on it. I'm sure it'll come to me at some point later. I will probably wake up in the middle of the night and shake my husband awake and be like, I know why New England is spooky. <laughs> like, I don't care. <laughs> Go back to you can always send me an email and, and we can add I might that. Do that yeah. I'll go figure it out. I you know it. I know the answer. But you're not wrong. And I mean, I, I've traveled a bit in the US and I think each area has its own different kind of eeriness or spookiness. But overall, I think it's yeah. just more concentrated here. The only place that is, yeah. for me, kind of similar would be like the Pacific Northwest, just because they've got kind of mm -hmm. the old growth forest, they've got the fog, right. they've got kind of yeah. that creepy, but a, just a little bit different. And in here, it's, yeah. it's kind of like when you think of Halloween, or at least maybe just because I grew up around here, but like when you think of Halloween, it's pretty much a New England kind of scene with the pumpkin patches. with. Yeah. Hay bales. Oh, yeah, and, that's, you know, yeah. when, I think, when I think of Halloween, I think of like, you know, when I was in elementary school and we would go out trick-or-treating, even if it was like gross and it had rain and the leaves were all wet and slick and it's like five o'clock at night, but it's pitch black mm -hmm. and, you know, you got that like spooky old full moon hanging up in the sky and you're, you're there in your costume Trick or treat, you know, that's that's definitely what I think of. But it's a very you're right, it's a very New England and what I'm associating, what I'm thinking about is the the weather, especially. Yeah. I'm thinking about how damp and cold and you don't care. You you're in your costume, you've got your candy, you're trick or treating. So what mm -hmm. is your favorite spooky thing? And that can be anything. 
it doesn't have to be just a book, a movie. It could be a ghost story. It could be a cryptid. It could be something mm-hmm. that happened to you. But what to you is the quintessential spooky thing? I think to me, my quintessential spooky thing, I think it would have to be the first grown-up adult scary movie I ever saw. Um, so when I was uh, like 11, I was really into Goosebumps books. And I was really... I was particularly obsessed with the, uh, at the time it was the Night of the Living Dummy trilogy. I think R.L. Stein has since written more books about, it. there's basically this evil ventriloquist dummy named Slappy, who's just, just a little, little bastard. <laughs> he's just, just a troublemaker and he's just awful, but he's so entertaining to read about. He's just a fantastic little villain. And I was really just obsessed with these books and I, w- I was Slappy for Halloween one year. I wrote like, uh, and I wish I still had these because I wrote them out longhand in a notebook. I did write Goosebumps fan fiction where it was like me and my friends versus like Slappy and he had this army of ventriloquist dummies and they all had superpowers and we had to save the town and stuff like that. I was really obsessed with Goosebumps books, just so obsessed with the, especially the evil ventriloquist dummy books. And so my dad saw this and I, I can't claim to know what he was thinking. But I assume it was something along the lines of, she likes the evil ventriloquist dummy books. And they made a movie about one of those with Anthony Hopkins. We should watch that. And so we watched Magic when I was 11. <laughs> and um, my dad hadn't rewatched it beforehand. <laughs> and, and so like, there were all these moments where he was like, oh, oh yeah, we got to fast forward. Don't, don't look, <laughs> don't look at this. It scared the heck out of me. And it also just kind of introduced me to like a whole new perspective on horror because for those of you not familiar with magic, it's um, made in the 70s and it's uh, Anthony Hopkins and Anne Margaret and Burgess Meredith and the, the creepiest ventriloquist dummy of all time. It's the creepiest looking thing. But Anthony Hopkins is a, a ventriloquist and he's like up and coming and he's going to be on TV and stuff. It turns out that he has schizophrenia. And so Burgess Meredith, his agent, he's, he's trying to help him. He's saying to him, like, you're sick, you're not well, you need help. I'm going to help you, I'm going to take care of you. And he's very, like, you know, gentle about it. He's not there like, you're crazy, we have to put you in the loony bin. He's just like, no, no, you need help. And, and I care about you, so I'm going to help you. And Anthony Hopkins is, is he, he's not well. He's not well, and he thinks the dummy is, is talking to him it's a really, a very taut thriller is what it is. It's, it's very suspenseful. It's very spooky. And it, it's kind of my ultimate spooky thing because I was 11 watching it with my dad. <laughs> that is great. I have not watched that movie since I was probably uh, 15 or 16, but <laughs> I think, I think I, I've always wanted I really to revisit it. it. I revisited it like a couple of years ago, like two or three years ago, and it holds up surprisingly well. It holds up surprisingly well. It's fairly um, progressive when talking about mental illness, and it, but it's still it's still very suspenseful, and it's it's a really well done narrative, and it's just scary. <laughs> <laughs> So that to me is my favorite spooky thing. Awesome. I don't know if in isolation <laughs> you're running into the same problem we are with a kid. My reading is down, my TV, my movie watching is down. I really thought I'd have more time to catch up on things. Violet did not sleep up until about, she was about a year old. Her sleep was just never good. Even now with a decent nap and she sleeps through the night, by the end of the day, I'm just like, oh, now I'm ready for bed. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Yeah, You know, my daughter, Lyra, um, Lyra sleeps very well at night. She's always been a very good sleeper at night. She bites nap time. I can't just put her in her crib. She's going to scream bloody murder for like forever. Um, so when it's nap time, we got to, you know, put her in the stroller and then walk her on the block until she falls asleep. Um, and then she'll sleep for anywhere from like 45 minutes to an hour. Oh. Yeah. Around there, yeah. not that great. She takes two naps a day, 
and then she's in bed by like 6 30 7 30 around there mm-hmm. but yeah by the end of the day i'm ready to collapse i'm ready to, i'm just i'm exhausted and i really haven't been doing a whole lot of of reading i've watched a couple of things but it was all done like really piecemeal it was all like a couple minutes here a couple minutes there i've actually been able to listen to podcasts mm-hmm. um uh, I, I like podcasts a lot. I like, I listen to a lot of uh, short fiction podcasts where like they just read a story mm-hmm. to you. Um, the ones that have, honestly, the, the podcasts that have like a big over, where it's an audio drama with a big overarching plot, I forget what happens between the seasons and then I can't follow it. And I'm just like, oh, I can't follow this. So it's, it's frustrating. But there's a bunch of podcasts that I like. In particular, I really like the Nightlight podcast. It is run by Tanya Thompson, and the purpose of the Nightlight podcast is to highlight a short fiction by Black writers. Mm. And so I really like that. It's been introducing me to a lot of really talented people I've, I've never heard of or and never would have heard of otherwise. And it's, you know, like, like we were talking about earlier, it's a new, new set of voices that I really like. So I'm a big fan of the Nightlight podcast. Of course, I like the No Sleep podcast, but I'm a little bit biased. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> Just a little bit. Uh, I like Pseudopod as well and Tales to Terror. I work from home, so I pretty much constantly listen to podcasts. I can't do the narrative podcast while I work just because I lose the thread, but I find right. driving, you know, I'll, I'll listen to the narrative podcast while I'm driving. Oh, yeah. I kind of need podcasts like what this is more conversational where you can kind of dip in and yeah, dip out if, if you miss something. Yeah, you're not going to really, you, you can, yeah, you can still catch the thread. But yeah, there was a yeah. time where it was 40 hours a week of podcasts. And <laughs> finally, that's kind of why I'm like, well, yeah. you know, everybody else is doing it. And I listen to enough of them. Why don't I try mine? I might as well. Yeah, yeah. I listen enough. Exactly. Yeah. It's quarantine. Everybody's doing a podcast. This was nice. This was like, you know, I got to talk to an adult for a little while. And that was nice. It's helpful, isn't it? It is very helpful. It's really nice to just, <laughs> you know, we, we're not doing a... Uh, in another round of peekaboo we're not uh you know well we'll have yeah, to do this no, again i think yeah i think so i i would if you want me back on i would Absolutely. love to i can talk more about or um i have more stories about random anecdotes about horror I mean, absolutely. I, I have no problem calling you back up. I just didn't want to okay. take too much of your time tonight and, you know. No, it's fine. Just, uh, I'm going to finish up the dishes and then go pass out. Yeah, I, I might watch a little TV tonight and then pass out myself. Oh, have you been watching What We Do in the Shadows? Oh, of course. Yes. I, we haven't seen last night's episode yet, but I absolutely love it. Oh, it's my favorite show. It, it's my husband and I, we love it so much. It's our favorite thing. Mm-hmm. It's our, probably one of the best shows on TV. Oh, absolutely. We actually are all caught up and no spoilers, but this oh, yeah, no, was no spoiler, please. such a good episode. <laughs> I mean, and they I all are. So, so happy that it got renewed for season three. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That made my day. I think I think I had heard that I'd been having such a, such a crappy day. My husband was like, guess what got renewed for a third season? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Yeah. No, top to bottom, everybody in that show is is just incredible. It's it's a funny, it's so well written. Thing is is just top notch, and I love the uh, I love the the dynamic between you know the 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 characters, the main vampires, and Guillermo. Um, and I love all the the guest stars that they've had. I thought that um, oh, what was his name? Is it Benedict Wong? From who's from the first episode of the season? Yes. Yeah. Yes, Benedict Wong. Oh, he was great. Romancer mm-hmm. who, oh. who tries to tow for back. <laughs> I thought Mark Hamill was so fantastic. Is oh. Jim the vampire? Oh my god, it's so incredible. Yeah. So funny. Yeah. <laughs> I was a I was a fan from the movie, obviously, and and. 
Yeah, I loved the movie. Mm-hmm. And I was worried. I mean, I, I had faith. I knew it would be good. I didn't know it yeah. would be this good. This good, yeah. yeah. You know, I thought it would be good too because Jermaine Clement and uh, Taika Waititi are still involved in it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, the original creators are still going to be in it. That's good. And then I saw the show and I was like, this is amazing. This is so, so good. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big Matt Berry fan anyway. So funny in the show. Oh, he's, he's great. Have you seen Garth Marenghi's Dark Place? I haven't. Check I haven't. that out. I like the, um, he did these little videos. They're like nature documentary clips that he's narrating. And, you know, part of it is like a serious documentary, but then he'll say something just really, really weird and funny. About like it was one about like wolves and caribou and the the caribou or the caribou is approaching the girl caribou and he's but this tot's having none of it. <laughs> I just love that line. Tot's having none of it. Sheep are weird, fuckers. <laughs> Great. Sorry, I didn't. I don't know. If it's for your fine. Show no, or, absolutely. Like, what whatever you want to say. <laughs> okay, I'm a bit of a potty mouth and I've been holding back. <laughs> Oh, that's fine. I, I've been holding back a lot. We try- mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta. Although it's funny, every time one of us slips up, we'll we'll just. Mommy had to say that because because it's true, but that's a bad word. We can't say that. No. I'm, I'm so sorry. But that person is an asshole. We just don't say that. You know? <laughs> Yes, I'm thinking that once she gets old enough, we might put a swear jar in the kitchen someplace. Yeah, we're we're pretty good about it, but it, you know, you get frustrated. It happens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just don't want her like repeating this stuff if she ever gets to go back to daycare. Oh yeah, that's yeah. like the main. That's mm-hmm. the main thing. I don't want you know a phone call. <laughs> so this is what your daughter said today. Parent. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, um, <laughs> all right. On that note, that, no, but it was it was really great talking to you. Thank you for taking. It was the really time. nice. Yes. Yeah, and we'll Thank do you it so again. Much for having me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We'll do it again. Yes. Thanks oh, a lot. Well, yeah. you. Thank you. Go get some rest, and we'll talk soon. And awesome. Well, you all enjoy right. your evening, and uh, I, will I will talk you to you do. soon. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Good night. And now, Dead Doug's Terrible Tale. This episode's tale is called, Who's the Real Dummy? Engastromits were thought to have demons residing in their stomachs that would belch forth words through their host. Ancient Greeks called this magical skill gastromancy. It was considered a form of necromancy, the practice of conjuring up the spirits of the dead. The oracle at the Temple of Delphi is a famous early example. She, like other ancient practitioners, chose to throw their voices, making it seem even more eerie, as if the sounds were coming from thin air. She never did employ a dummy in her work. Those creepy little homunculi come much, much later. Today we use the term ventriloquist, meaning belly speaker, to describe those who have seemingly mystical capabilities of sound projection. And it wasn't just the Greeks. Other instances of this classic gag can be found in cultures all over the world. From Africa to China in the Arctic, the use of it may have started as early as the dawning of language itself. The act was always the provenance of priests and mystics and was cloaked in arcane theologies. Elizabeth Barton was born sometime around 1506 in the town of Aldington, England. While working as a servant for Sir Thomas Cobb, she fell ill and was in a catatonic state. When she recovered, she had the miraculous gift of prophecy. She accurately predicted the death of one of her employer's children. Conveniently, the child was also ill at the time, and we all know how high the mortality rate was back then. So, one could infer that it was more of an educated guess on her part, rather than any divine message. Either way, word of her, gift, spread and she continued having visions of far-off places and the souls she could see in the afterlife. 
Adding to her reputation as a true prophet were the voices that could be heard emanating from her body, though her lips stayed firmly shut. Speaking of heaven, her voice was melodic and sweet like an angel, but when she spoke of hell, it became terrible and frightening, as of a demon. As these stories go, she of course became a nun, and a famous one at that. She was often called the Nun of Kent, or the Holy Maid of London. Unfortunately, by the end of her life, she was known by the far less kind sobriquet of the Mad Maid of Kent. Her legend continued to grow during her life, as did her powers. She was able to not just receive visions from other realms, but was able to bring forth souvenirs of her travels. She had a veil that had been scorched in the fires of hell, a manuscript in gold, supposedly personally written by Mary Magdalene in heaven, and a befouled handkerchief with which she'd wiped her face after Satan spat on her when she spurned his advances. This reminds me of the spiritualists who would come in the future. They would often produce ectoplasm from various orifices or conjure trinkets from the other side and they would typically throw their voices to simulate the words of the dearly departed. Oftentimes they would employ luminous floating musical instruments for the shades to speak through, trumpets being the top choice, maybe as a nod to the angel Gabriel's preferred instrument. History repeats itself and a good trick never goes out of style. Elizabeth's divination must have had a blind spot, as she never saw her eventual downfall coming. She made the foolhardy mistake of wading into King Henry VIII's love life. She told the king that the Archangel Michael had warned her of dire consequences if he separated from his current wife, Catherine of Aragon. She then went on to tell Henry of the special place in hell waiting for him, if he was to marry Anne Boleyn. She even claimed that during one of Henry's visits to France, the Virgin Mary was so angry at him while attending Mass that she took the communion wafer from the king and gave it to Elizabeth, who was astrally present but invisible. After the marriage eventually transpired, Barton said she was witness to a devil whispering in Anne's ear, with the intent to influence Boleyn and the king. Henry showed uncharacteristic restraint with the Nun of Kent, that is, until he became head of the newly formed Church of England. He no longer had to fear the Pope or any divine punishment, and he was now the Lord's representative on earth, or at least the British Empire. Elizabeth Barton was soon imprisoned. Her books of prophecy were rounded up and burned. She was forced to confess that she was a charlatan and was only trying to impress her various lovers, including numerous priests and Dr. Bocking, who had also been very vocal about his displeasure with the king. On April 20th, 1534, she was executed by hanging at the infamous site of Tyburn, a popular spot in those days as entertainment for the masses was hard to come by. After her death, her body was cut down and beheaded. Her head was then boiled to preserve it and impaled on a spike on the tower bridge. To this day, it is said that her ghost roams wild and restless around the remains of the graveyard at Greyfriars, where her body lies. When the witch trials burned through Europe, sorry, couldn't resist, Christianity's relationship to ventriloquism did not much improve. It was regarded as a practice spawned by hell itself, as they associated it with witchcraft and possession. They never came to a consensus on where the sounds emanated from, as they named orifices from the vagina to the nostrils as possible means of egress. It wasn't always just humans that would bewitch a poor soul. There was an instance where baying hounds could be heard in the stomach of a young boy in England. Was it just growling hunger pangs or howling hellhounds? The answer is lost in time. Luckily, by the 18th century, ventriloquism had shed its mysticism and was becoming a renowned stage act, drawing huge crowds throughout Europe. Still, it wasn't until the mid-1800s that the mouth-moving puppet became popular with performers. Those with automatonophobia, the fear of human-like figures, would have bolted for the exit at those early shows, since many of the practitioners would make use of up to 30 dummies at a time running to and fro, operating them with the use of pneumatics. Fred Russell is the man responsible for whittling down the number to one, thus creating the comedy duo aspect of ventriloquism we are familiar with today. This more modern form of performance remained popular through vaudeville and carried on through the age of television, 
launching the careers of Edgar Bergen, Senor Wences, Wayland Flowers, Sherry Lewis, and Willie Tyler. Another individual to find their star rising in the field was Paul Winchell. When he was 13, he contracted polio, and while recuperating came across a magazine ad selling a ventriloquist kit for 10 cents. He talked his shop teacher into letting him fashion a dummy for school credit. With practice, he got so good at throwing his voice that he would often prank people to great effect. Once, he even convinced his mother that someone was trapped in his bedroom closet. Those sort of hijinks would often earn him a whipping. Clara was a stern, domineering mother who would wield great power over Paul even after her death. Her hold on him was so great that it exacerbated Winchell's mental health struggles later in life. His big break was hosting a children's show with his two puppet pals, Jerry Mahoney and Knucklehead Smith. Winchell improved his dummies by slipping his hands into the sleeves of their jackets, giving the effect that they could gesture while conversing. He was also an innovator in other ways, and held a patent for an early version of the artificial heart, and also designed a disposable razor long before Gillette brought them to market. At the height of his fame, his mother passed away. Paul wasted no time after her death and soon had a dummy created in her likeness. He didn't stop at just an accurate carving of her from wood. Oh no. He went to a dentist and had dentures made in the shape of her teeth. He purchased a wig of real human hair that matched hers. And most gruesome of all, he bought a pair of chimpanzee eyes from a local taxidermist. He did all this, as he said so he could finally know what it was like to control her instead of her controlling him. Even after death, Clara's grip on him was so strong. Unfortunately, his first wife walked in on Paul's strange home therapy session to find him in a screaming match with the effigy of Clara. No surprise, the marriage did not survive. Rosetta, his next wife, was said to have been even more manipulative than his mother, even going on to insist that he call her Clara, and claiming that she was now his therapist. None of this did any good for his psychological balance, and Paul decided it was time to have himself committed. Once inside, he quickly changed his mind, and employing his old childhood stunt, convinced a guard someone was trapped in the linen closet so he could make his escape. Winchell, wearing nothing but his hospital johnny, finally found his way to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and to his mother's grave. There he was confronted by her spirit and an assortment of Egyptian gods who had convened to pass judgment on him for being a terrible son. All the tortured specters of the underworld tormented him while the ghost of his mother compelled him to write a book about her life. All appeared lost, until in a last-minute save, his old friends Jerry and Knucklehead swooped in to do battle on his behalf. Seemingly instilled with their own anima, they no longer needed Winchell's guiding hands or voice. They instructed Paul to use an incantation to dispel all the harrowing gods and ghosts. Funnily enough, the magic words happened to be the password from his old kids show. With a cry of Scottawada doo doo, Paul and his puppets banished dear old mom and the deities back from whence they came. In a moment of lucidity, he decided he maybe needed to go back to the hospital to seek more help. It must have worked, as Winchell went on to live a full life, and used his talents to give voice to many beloved cartoon characters, including many for Hanna-Barbera, Gargamel from the Smurfs, and most notably Tigger and Winnie the Pooh. His talented timbered saviors retired and now reside at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. They take up residence with a handful of other notable colleagues, including the original Charlie McCarthy puppet used by Edgar Bergen. Now, I can't help but picture some sort of night at the museum scenario where they all come to life every night, wandering the halls in search of adventure. If you have an itch to see more than just a few famous models on display, head roughly 500 miles west of DC, and you will find a gallery devoted solely to showcasing those chiseled icons. Vent Haven Museum is located in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, and boasts the largest collection of dummies in the world, along with thousands of pictures, playbills, and a library of books dedicated to Vent, the slang term for the profession. The brainchild of William Shakespeare Berger, former president of the International Brotherhood of Ventriloquists, the museum is home to over 900 models, some of them dating as far back as the Civil War. 
Visitors are welcome and can tour the exhibits, and while there are figures that guests are allowed to manipulate for education purposes, the vast majority of them are off-limits. You never handle someone else's dummy, states museum curator Lisa Sweezy. Because the ventriloquists have spent a lot of time developing those characters and giving them a voice. Fair enough, I would probably get the willies from animating some dead ventriloquist's idol anyway. Who knows what kind of phantoms one might conjure with that sort of sorcery. Vent Haven holds an annual convention. Get it? Convention? Hundreds of performers come from all corners of the world to swap tales, polish their act, and see performances. It all sounds like a good laugh, but I wouldn't be caught dead in the museum after hours. Row after row of hopefully lifeless puppets lined up against the walls or sitting in chairs, with glassy dead eyes staring into the distance, looking eerily like little moppets waiting for the teacher to come and start their daily lessons. As Stephen King famously said, nobody likes a clown at midnight. I think the same could be said for these dummies. One malevolent mannequin that doesn't call Vent Haven home goes by the name of Mr. Fritz. He is something in common with our old friend the Mad Maid of Kent, as he too is just a head on display. History does not reveal the whereabouts of his body. What is known is that Mr. Fritz was created by a POW in the Stalag 2B concentration camp during World War II, as a means to entertain and boost morale. American soldier Private Billy Booth had been a children's entertainer before the war. He fashioned his figure from German newspapers soaked in potato starch and painted with a smuggled pot of pink gloss, and for 18 months brought some small joy to his fellow inmates. Tragically, two weeks before the camp was liberated, a group of prisoners, including Billy, were executed for not working hard enough. Once the camp was freed from Nazi control, Mr. Fritz was brought back to America and given to Billy's grieving parents. From there, Fritz and his story are lost for many years, until he is found in Myrtle Beach at an antiques mall by a militaria dealer. A small handwritten note accompanied the disembodied doll's head, giving his history and connection to the camps and the war. The dealer, who wishes to remain anonymous, noticed odd instances with the figure as soon as he was brought home. The display case was often found open in the morning, even after being locked the night before. The doll's eyes would open and close, and the mouth would move position, seemingly of its own accord. Eventually, out of fear, he placed the nefarious noggin in the garden shed. The last straw came when his children admitted to hearing laughter while playing nearby. Mr. Fritz had to go. As fate would have it, he knew just the man who would be interested in the remains of a possessed puppet, Michael Diamond, a collector of sideshow exhibits and other oddities. Among his treasures are an elephant-headed boy from Braiding Waxwork Museum, real execution axes, Houdini's handcuffs, and shrunken heads, all on display in his freak room. Diamond started witnessing the same chilling phenomena as his dealer acquaintance and set up a camera to catch Mr. Fritz in the act. The video is easily found online and shows the case popping open and the sinister sight of the doll opening and shutting his eyes, mouth dropping open and closing as if wishing to speak. What words might he impart, and would anyone really want to hear them? That was all Michael needed to see. The dummy's display is now locked with chains and covered in heavy blankets. Out of sight, but definitely not out of mind of his caretaker. It would seem that the foul fiends of the netherworld prefer to occupy a graven image of humans rather than the real thing these days. Or maybe there is a rational explanation for dummies operating on their own, and we are just projecting on them our dread of the uncanny valley. According to an article from Atlas Obscura, legendary critic Walter Kerr wrote of a 1977 Greenwich Village cabaret act featuring ventriloquism. Do you realize what nominous presence a ventriloquist dummy can be? Often is, he said. He then compared them to Frankenstein's monster and the artist's fear that their creation could destroy them. Rumor has it that even Sir Anthony Hopkins is not immune. The dummy built to co-star with him in the psychological horror film Magic was a caricature of the famous actor. Hopkins was allowed to take the dummy home with him so he could work with it. 
Dennis Allwood, who was hired as a consulting ventriloquist for the film, received a panic phone call in the middle of the night from Anthony. It seems Hopkins was so freaked out by the dummy that he was threatening to destroy it if someone didn't come and retrieve it immediately. The film's director, Richard Attenborough, went to Hopkins' house, calmed him down, and retrieved the dummy. I have to thank our interviewee, Lindsay, for that bit of trivia. Music for The Terrible Tale was provided by my good friend Dan Sardella. This has been a Violet Says Boo production. Say boo. Boo.